If you're able, please stand with us as I read um, Exodus 20, 8 through 11, and then we're going to jump over to Mark 2, 23 through 28. So Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Mark 2. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in a time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Caleb. I am the pastor of student ministries here at Providence, and it is my great joy to open God's word with you this morning. Uh, before we dive into our text, though, would you, just real quick, would you pray with me? Father, you are matchless. You are all-powerful, all-knowing, glorious, utterly amazing, Father, and we confess that we are none of those things. That we gather together this morning in great need of you, even to understand your word. And so our prayer is that you would be among us this morning, that your spirit would be at work in our lives to convict us, to conform us to the image of your son. And Father, I also ask that you would take these feeble words of mine and you would use them, that you would take them and and instill them with power, Father, as a demonstration of your spirit. Father, would you be glorified in our time together? And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. There once was two lumberjacks, let's call them Peter and John, who lived in the same vicinity. Unsurprisingly, they could never agree on who was the better lumberjack. And so one day they decided, let's hold a competition. Let's see who can cut down more trees in a single day. And whoever that is will be declared the better woodsman. And so on the day of the competition, they each head out into the forest, axe in hand, and begin chopping at the appointed time. Peter begins swinging ferociously, but somewhere in the forest, he hears John matching him swing for swing. But about an hour in, Peter realizes that John has stopped, 
And he thinks to himself, ha-ha, he's already tired. This is my chance to get ahead. And he continues at his furious pace. Eventually, he hears John start up again, matching him stroke for stroke for another hour or so, and then John stops again. And this pattern repeats itself throughout the day, and each time John stops, Peter thinks to himself, this is it. I can get farther ahead. I need to press on and press into the work. But to his shock and surprise, at the end of the day, John won. He had cut down more trees than Peter. And he says, how is this possible, John? I worked all the day through. You were taking breaks every hour. To which John replied, it's really quite simple, Peter. Every time I took a break, I was sharpening my axe. And that story encapsulates what much of modern science has been telling us about work and rest, that you will enjoy your life more. You will be more productive at your work if you have rhythms of rest, if you take the time to sharpen your axe. And this should make perfect sense to us because God has been telling us the same thing for thousands of years. Now, if you're just joining us this morning, uh, we are in a series where we're journeying through the book of Exodus, and we have slowed down to look at the Ten Commandments, to mine them for their significance. And today we're looking at commandment number four, to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. Now, in one sense, this command makes perfect sense. God knows that man isn't a machine and that he needs rest, and so he orders him to take a break. It's a, it's a no-brainer. But in another sense, this command makes no sense. I mean, think about it. In the past couple of weeks, we've looked at the importance of a relationship with God, how there should be no other gods, no other idols before him. And in the upcoming weeks, we're going to look at some grievous crimes against other humans, murder and adultery. But right here, in the middle of all that, is a command to take a break once a week. Let's be honest, the Sabbath is a command, but it certainly feels more like it's a suggestion. Definitely doesn't feel like it qualifies to be one of the ten foundational commands for the nation of Israel. Which should clue us in that there is something more going on with the Sabbath. And so the, this morning, we're going to look at the longest of the Ten Commandments in an effort to understand what that is. What is this command doing? What does it mean for us? And so from our text, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the logic of the Sabbath. We're going to look at the loss of the Sabbath. And finally, we're going to look at the Lord of the Sabbath. Who God commands the nation of Israel in our text, starting in verse 8, to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Now on a surface level, this command is rather straightforward. You need to take a break once a week, we're calling it the Sabbath. But we need to realize that speech, and specifically rules, both say things and they do things. So if I tell my kids, don't play in the street, that's a fairly easy command to understand, what I have said, but that command also is doing something. It's reorienting their relationship to the street so that they might have a longer, more flourishing life. 
And the same thing is happening here with this command. God is saying, keep the Sabbath, take a break. But what he's doing is he's reorienting their relationship to work so that they might have a more flourishing life. See, he, he wants to shape their rhythm of work and rest. And here's what he wants their understanding to be shaped by. Verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God wants their rhythm of work and rest to be based on his own. Now, we need to make sure we understand the connection here. So keep your fingers in Exodus 20. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 1. As you turn there, we need to, to remember that in Genesis 1, we find God creating all things in the span of six days. And at the end of each day, he declares that what he has, he has made, the work that he's done, is good. And here's how the writer summarizes his work week in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now what we see here is God working and then resting which shouldn't make a lot of sense to us because we're talking about God here. He doesn't need a nap. It's not like he was exhausted from the long hours of the week. And so if he isn't tired, what does it mean that he rested? Well, what does our text say? It says that he surveys all of his work, all that he had done, and he is satisfied in it. His rest is delighting in the completed work. And this is an essential component to resting, one that my wife reminds me of whenever we do projects together. Like uh, about a year ago, we were uh, putting up some shiplap in our house and painting some walls, and you know, we were going along at a good pace, and I happened to look at my watch, and it's 10.30, which is when I like to call it quits. And so uh, I say something to the effect of, well, we put in a good day's work. Why don't, why, don't we just, why don't we just go to bed and then we'll finish like this 30% we have left tomorrow? And she let me know, without using words the way spouses do, that that's fine if you want to do that, Caleb, but I'm staying up until the job is done. And of course I say, but, but why? And this is what she said. Because even if I stop working, I won't be able to rest until the work is done. See, rest isn't just ceasing from work. It's being satisfied in the work that has been done. And so what we see here is God working, and then he rests. He ceases from his work and is completely satisfied in his work. Which is great, but what in the world does that have to do with me and my week and you and your work week? actually has everything to do with it because God's completed work intersects with your lives. Fun fact, the Ten, Ten Commandments appears not just once in its entirety in the first five books of the Old Testament, but twice. 
Once in Exodus 20, which is where we normally turn, but it's also in Deuteronomy chapter 5, when Moses is giving his farewell address to the nation. The command to keep the Sabbath is exactly the, exactly the same, except for one thing. The rationale changes. Here's what Moses says, Deuteronomy 5, 15. Why should they keep the Sabbath? You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, before you accuse the Bible of being inconsistent with their narrative, understand what the deliverance of Israel from out of Egypt was. It's a completed work of God. The Israelites were working unceasingly. They were slaves. They weren't able to rest or bring about rest. And so God comes in and liberates them. They were unable to bring about rest and freedom from toil, and so God doesn't. And so in instituting the Sabbath, he is commanding them to habitually stop striving, to stop working and delight in what God has done, his past provision for them, and to trust his future provision for them. See, keeping the Sabbath is far more than pragmatics. Listen how God describes the Sabbath in Exodus 31. Exodus 31, verses 16 and 17, he says, Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. See, when they, they Sabbath, when we Sabbath, we are remembering God's provision and work for us, and we are demonstrating our trust in that provision by not working. See, Sabbath isn't just resting from something. Sabbath is resting in something. But it seems like we have lost the ability to, to do this. We are perhaps the most restless people of all time. Now, of course, the invitation to work without ceasing has always been there, but it, it seems like the draw to work is stronger now than ever before. And there's, there's several reasons for that. Let me give you two of them. One is technology. Technology has enabled us to work anywhere, which of course means we work everywhere. Think about it. You're at the grocery store. The line is long. What do you do? You pull out your phone and start checking your email. You're at dinner. There's a lull in the conversation. What do you do? You pull out your phone and see if there's any responses to your Slack messages. And now that many of us have the green light to work from home, the line between work and not work has been blurred beyond recognition. Technology has enabled us to be an overworked, restless people devoid of Sabbath. Here's another reason. Financial security or stability. Regardless of where you find yourself on the socioeconomic spectrum, you'll most likely find yourself overworked. You're at the lower end of things. You're working multiple jobs, taking extra shifts. Why? Because you're trying to provide a level of financial stability for you and your family. 
But at the other end of things, that's also true. You might be making a lot of money, but you are expected to work a lot of hours. And if you don't do that, that's fine. Because there's a whole line of people that would love your job and salary. And so regardless of where you are on the spectrum, you are compelled to overwork, to, to, to not cease working. And you might hear this and conclude that the problem is work itself, that, that if we were just in a field or a company that was more generous with its pay, or if we were just more disciplined to stop working, then the problem would be solved. But that's not true. And here's how I know. Because of what God says about work. See, work is actually a good thing. It's something that he gave to us before everything went south. Which means that work is not the problem. It's whatever is going on underneath our work. See, there's a work that's always going on beneath our surface weekly work. Uh, Judith Sholovitz, who was a writer for the New York Times in an article titled Bring Back the Sabbath, uh, actually talks about this work under work. Uh, while she's reflecting on the Sabbath adherence in her family growing up, she, she states that one of the purposes of the Sabbath was to still the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. The eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. What is that? Easiest way is to illustrate it with sports movies. So we've all seen the, uh, the Rocky training montage, right, where he's running and he's sparring, he's drinking his eggs. But what we, what we don't remember as much is why he's doing all of that stuff. Of course, he wants to, to, to beat Apollo Creed, but he actually explains what's driving him to Adrian in the film. He, he says that if I can go the distance and that bell rings and I'm still standing, then I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. Inner murmur. Let me give you another one. In the classic film Chariots of Fire, which follows two uh, British runners who competed in the 1924 Olympics, one of them, Harold Abrams, is asked by a reporter, why do you do what you do? Why do you run? And this was his answer. Because when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. The inner murmur of self Approach. It's the voice in our heads that says that you need to prove your worth. You need to justify your existence. You need to show to everyone, including yourself, that you're not just another bum. And the thing we normally look to to justify ourselves, to silence the inner murmur, is work. And of course, there are different types of work that we try to mute the murmur with. Uh, it's not always the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon type of work. Uh, it can be academic work, uh, the drive to achieve high marks so that we can prove our worth and value to college and scholarship application committees. Uh, or, or it can be parenthood, uh, that if we aren't exceptional parents, if we aren't constantly overworking and going the extra mile to give our children the absolute best, and the voice kicks in and says we're a failure. Or it can take the form of our religious practices. We can look to the length of our quiet time, the depth of our Bible knowledge, or the breadth of our good works to show that we matter. Now, please hear me. 
I'm not saying any of those things are bad. They're actually great things. It's our relationship to them that causes the problem. We look to our work to do a work on our souls. And here's how you can tell if that's happening in your life. Here's the chief indicator. If you're using some type of work to try and silence the inner murmur to justify yourself, your anxiety. And by that, I don't mean fear. I, I, I mean restlessness, which is, is very different than the feeling uh, that we get from from deadlines and stuff like that. You see, it's rather normal to feel the pressures of different deadlines for work. There's a, a, a normal type of, of restlessness that comes with those type of deadlines. But once we finish them, what happens? There's a sigh of relief. There's a sense of satisfaction of a job completed. But when work is working on your soul's value, that sigh of relief never comes. Why? Because the type of, that type of work is never done. Your soul will never be fully justified by your work. In the moment that you finish the task, when you're about to take that sigh of satisfaction and rest, the murmur pipes up and says, hey, hey, good job today. You exceeded expectations. Good job. But what about tomorrow? What about the next day? See, you're, you're always going to have the chance to slip up tomorrow, so you better keep working today. No time to rest. See, the murmur doesn't stop no matter how much you accomplish, no matter how impressive you are. It keeps you in an almost constant state of anxiety because there's always the possibility that you won't have enough, you won't perform well enough, you won't be enough. And so we are unable to rest. We are unable to Sabbath because we have shouldered the weight of our worth. And we can never stop working because the work underneath the work is never done. We have, in effect, made ourselves the lords of our Sabbath, the proprietors of our rest, and in doing so, we have enslaved ourselves to our labor which is why Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees in the second passage we read this morning is so important. In Mark chapter 2, the Pharisees are upset with Jesus' followers because they have broken the Sabbath. And what are they really trying to do here? Ultimately, the Pharisees are trying to justify themselves. They were endlessly working at not working as an attempt to silence the murmur. Ceasing to work for them was working against the inner voice of self-reproach. And what Jesus does in this passage is he explains to them they've misunderstood the Sabbath. He says to them in verses 27 and 28, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What's he saying here? You're trying to be the lords of your Sabbath. You're trying to bring about rest from your own striving, but you can't do that because there's only one Lord of the Sabbath, and it's me. I'm the one who offers the rest that your soul longs for. And what's their response? Well, just a few verses later, they want to destroy him over this. They want to kill him. Why? 
because he's saying that you can't justify yourself, that your work doesn't work. And here's why that is. Isaiah 57, verse 20, explains that the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, it cannot rest, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. It's our wickedness, it's our sin that has cut us off from real rest. See, sin at its heart is not action. It's, it's this belief that God cannot be trusted. And, and when you can't trust God and his goodness towards you, you can't rest in his provision, which means that you must shoulder that weight. And so for us to rest, Jesus must deal with our restlessness that has been brought upon us by our sin. And here's how he did it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus took upon himself our wickedness, our sin. On the cross, we see him in agony, restless beyond belief, because he is bearing our sin and all of our restlessness. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God so that he might declare once and for all that it is finished. The work is complete. So that you and I might finally rest. See, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 10, explains what the rest God in Christ offers us means. He says that whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his See, when we accept Jesus as Savior and King, a, a number of things happen. One of them is that we rest from our work. We stop trying to measure up, to be good enough, to justify ourselves by our doing, and we are content in Christ's work on our behalf. We believe his voice over the inner murmur that the work is truly finished. That when we stand before God, we are, we are not justified by our doing, but by his. Grasping this is the only way that a day of ceasing to work will ever be a Sabbath. See, it's only possible if you are resting in what Jesus has accomplished for you. Only if you are resting in his completed work will you be able to rest from your weekly work. See, because of Jesus, we, we still Sabbath. We just don't have all the regulations in place like the Old Testament. But what we do have is the same imperative, that we must cease from the things we believe we can't live without. We must be vigilant against our attempts to silence the inner murmur ourselves. And that might call for something radical. You might need to turn off your cell phone for a day. Or let your wife hold it just so you don't miss a call from your mom. Uh, it might require the discipline of steering your mind away from the plans and projects of your hands and admiring the handiwork of his. It might require you to schedule less so that you might reflect more. It might require you not to accomplish as much as you'd like. If you Sabbath, you might not go as far up the corporate ladder as you want. You might not have as high a marks on the GPA scale as you want. See, remembering the Sabbath requires far more than just a lazy day off. 
it requires us to trust that God will care for us if we cease from work. That he will continue to work all things for the good of those who love him if we stop working. And we will only have that assurance if we look to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So can I ask you, are you restless this morning? Because the reality is, as St. Augustine said, our hearts will be restless until we rest in him. And so come to him, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Take his yoke upon you and learn from him, for he is gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gracious provision of us, that you have provided all that we need in Jesus, that you have completed the work. Father, we confess, I confess, that it is hard to believe that sometimes. It's hard to not attempt to, to satisfy and silence the inner, inner murmur on our own. Father, would you forgive our attempts to justify ourselves, to, to prove ourselves apart from you? And would you help us to see not just your great love, but your completed work in Jesus on our behalf? Would you help us to see it and delight in it, Father? Would you help us to see it and trust in it as we cease from our work? Even now, Father, as we continue to, to praise you, to lift high your name, would you minister to our souls? Would you remind us of the completed work on our behalf? And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.